Hello and welcome to Designing Education Podcast. In today's episode, we're talking to Suzanne Diggs-Wilburn from Achieve Atlanta about how we can provide all our students the supports and experiences they need to make a successful transition from high school into college and succeed once they're there. We can't wait to jump into the conversation. But before we start, we want to take a moment to remind you to subscribe to the Designing Education Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We're available on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, just to name a few. Subscribe to the Designing Education Podcast and never miss an episode. Welcome to the Designing Education Podcast Series. I'm Dr. Robert Balfance, Director of the Pathways to Adult Success Program and the Everyone Graduate Center at Johns Hopkins University. I'm delighted to have you join us today. This is the ninth episode in a series of conversations we'll be having with education leaders, thinkers, and practitioners from across the country. We'll talk about what will it take to create an education system that truly empowers all young people and sets them on a pathway to long-term success. In today's episode, I'll be joined by Suzanne Diggs-Wilburn, Vice President of College Success, Achieve Atlanta. Our nation's public education system has always sought to prepare and enable each generation to be ready to succeed in the world. One of the key rationales for having a system of free public education in the 19th century was that it was needed to ensure that children acquired the basic literacies required to make a living in a modernized world. A driving reason why the U.S. led the world in making a high school education the norm for all students in the 20th century was the realization that basic literacy was no longer enough to be prepared for adult success. Today, to be in a pathway to adult success requires not only a high school diploma, but some post-secondary schooling or training beyond it. Half of all good jobs, which could help support families today, go to young adults with a four-year college degree, and more than a quarter go to those with a two-year degree. That leaves a smaller and smaller pathway to success for young adults with just a high school diploma. Yet the supports we provide to students to make the transition from high school to college and to succeed in college have not kept pace with this transition. In part, this is because the K-12 schooling and higher education were designed as two separate systems with very little connective tissue between them. This makes it easy to get lost or to be denied opportunity. Into this breach, a number of community-based nonprofits have stepped to help design the supports and create the ecosystems that are needed but don't exist. Achieve Atlanta is at the forefront of this work and why we are so excited to learn from them in our podcast. Welcome, Suzanne. Before we dive in into designing education, we like to start by asking all our guests, when you were in school, what was a good day? Hi, Bob, and thank you for having me. For some reason, when you say school, I think of primary school. Um, in California, we always started the Tuesday before Labor Day, which would have been yesterday. A good day back then for me was wearing whatever favorite outfit I'd picked out I was excited about from my back to school wardrobe and having completed all of my homework and worked ahead so that I was prepared, had all my assignments done for the next lesson. Um, so this good feeling about my day started pretty much in primary school, but it really did persist for me throughout graduate school. And it was about excited about back to school clothing, but also making sure I had all of my homework prepared and I had worked ahead so that I was ready to learn. Wow. Kind of nerdy, but that was me. That was great. Ready. You wanted to start out with a running start. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Um, so let's let's us start today by learning a little bit about Achieve Atlanta. 
Can you share with us what its mission is and who it works with? Sure. So Achieve Atlanta's mission is to help Atlanta public school students access, afford, and earn a post-secondary credential. And that is so that Atlanta becomes a city where race and income no longer predict post-secondary success and upward mobility. So on the high school side, that means that we work with Atlanta Public Schools, um, the College Advising Corps, and One Goal. Um, And we partner with them to provide a college-going culture, um, but to also support our 11th and 12th grade students, all 11th and 12th grade students in Atlanta Public Schools, um, as they get ready to apply for a post-secondary credential. Um, We offer a scholarship, which is $5,000 for four years within a five-year period, um, or $2,500 for two years within a three-year period. And then on the post-secondary side, we have partnerships with 10 colleges, three nonprofits, and we also have a coaching fellow, um, as well as sort of piloting um, some work with out-of-state scholars to provide coaching and support. And so our scholar profile is about 5,000 scholars that we serve currently. They attend over 300 different colleges and universities. Um, 94% of them are Black or Hispanic. We serve about one-third of all Atlanta public school high school seniors who become scholars. And then 96% of them are eligible for Pell Grants. Roughly 25% of our scholars attend HBCUs. About 21% attend school or college out of state. Um, And that's been an increase of about 15 to 17% prior to the pandemic. About 2% of our students pursue a technical or associate degree, uh, 22% an associate degree. Um, And then fully half of our students are first-generation college students. That's a lot of students you're helping. And as you said, you know, you're working with over 5,000, you know, high school and college students in Atlanta. And I'm sure you must be learning a lot from them. What are they telling you about what they need to make a successful transition from high school to college and to succeed in college? Well, in high school, we're hearing that they really need understanding and guidance on match and fit, right, for their college choices. They want social support and guidance, um, almost like a playbook for navigating the transition and the entry process to college. That's from graduation all the way through housing applications, um, you know, orientation, um, enrolling, advisement, all of those processes that it takes have many, many barriers that many of our students have no experience navigating. And so they really want to make sure that they can be successful and they need that support and help and information. And while access to college spaces is really important, it's just as much about the relationships that are built throughout the process as when they get there. So finding that human, that's what we call it in our group, you know, finding that one person can make the difference between just being a student and being a community member. It's the difference between, you know, being accepted and truly belonging. Wow. I think that's profound, right? The difference between being a student and a community member. And, you know, for too long, it's sort of like, in a way, it's, you know, it's harsh, but like the students are a commodity, right? Every year we have another batch of students. Yep. But what we need is, right, to your point, we need community, which is, which is eternal, right? It, it's, it's there, right? It's, it's not a, a transactional thing. Right. That's very powerful. How has the pandemic or has the pandemic scrambled this or changed what students are saying they need? Oh, wow. Yes. Um, we found out that really, you know, we've always said we need to meet students where they are. And that really 
became important uh, once the pandemic hit. Um, And what we found was that uh, we met them most successfully on their phones. Um, You know, we participated in a lot of scholar engagement call campaigns. We evaluated tons of our communication strategies um, through phone calls, emails, and text messages. And we found that the phone calls were the most profoundly accepted by our scholars because it showed that someone really cared for them, cared for their future. Somebody would spend time with them, listen to them, and hear about the challenges that they were experiencing. Um, and they weren't, it wasn't just calling me to tell me what I needed to do next, which was important, but also being a listening ear um, really mattered to our students during quarantine. Yeah, again, that's, I think that's a, you know, so true from what we're learning that, you know, I think the CDC is out today saying that, you know, one in four young adults reported having mental health challenges during the pandemic. And then they had a prior study saying that students that said that they had somebody either in person or virtual, they knew cared about them as a person, reported half the mental health challenges of those who didn't. So that human connection, right, is just so deeply essential to feeling like you belong, right? And if you feel like you're belonging cared for, you you believe you can overcome more, right? You're not on your own. You're not by yourself. Absolutely. And we've seen, uh, even among our scholars, the need for um, services, uh, behavioral health services skyrocket. Um, we hear from our partners just the number of, of students that they are escorting to um, counseling services on campus. Um, we're hearing from faculty that students are speaking up in class and saying they need help. Um, and they need support and that, um, you know, colleges and universities are meeting students where they are. They're creating, you know, pet friendly dorms uh, for students to bring their pets. Some of them are support animals. Some of them are great. are just, you know, a friend on campus to yeah. help ease that transition. So I think everyone is really learning how to to meet students where they are. Yeah, that, that's really wonderful. Um you know, and again, just reflecting on what, you know, the lessons of the pandemic, you know, a lot of the focus has been on, as you know, as appropriate, like things like learning loss. But I think it also showed us like how important that human connection was. And when that was broken, you know, many, many bad things flew from that, you know, and then at the same token, when it's reestablished, it's really like the pathway back. Right. Right. Um, so, you know, shifting gears just a little bit, but in many ways, Achieve Atlanta is like, I see it as an ecosystem builder, right? You're helping to assemble and bring together the multiple partners and institutions needed to create a more seamless and supported pathways into and through college. And really, as I said, like, you know, we have these two systems that are sort of started independently and still largely are independent. And like that connective tissue, right, is need to create an ecosystem to have that. Right. And that's, you know, easy to say, but hard to do. So what have been some of the challenges you've, you've come across as you've worked to create this ecosystem and some of the lessons you've learned along the way? So, <laughs> so many lessons. Um, you know, my background is, is really not education. It really is uh, consulting. And so um, my perspective in any new relationship really revolves around helping and supporting. Um, and that's a perspective that is shared across our organization with all of my colleagues. And so the most exciting thing about sort of creating this ecosystem has been sort of trying out these new, you know, these different ways of creating connection with partners um, for, 
you know, creating that supportive web for our students and trying out new and different ways uh, for us to to provide that support. So we could experiment and discover different ways to apply some of those uh, professional tools that strengthen our relationships and that created those webs of support for our black and brown students. And so, you know, we really sort of, you know, spent a lot of time in investing in this architect, this architecture of a partnership infrastructure. Um, and each relationship has been launched using almost this consulting approach. Um, we built these cross-sector relationships by what we call contracting or behavioral contracting with these different institutions and entities and, and nonprofit organizations. And what we mean by contracting is really understanding how do we want to work together? How do we want to behave with one another? Um, our partners were chosen based on vision alignment. They accepted because, you know, we were aligned in the way that we want to, to support students and help them be successful. Um, and we really made an effort to tie into their strategic plan. So it was a win-win. You know, there was, there was an ability to benefit from the attainment of some mutually beneficial goals uh, on both the high school and post-secondary sides. So this alignment sort of created interdependence. And that interdependence provides a foundation for trust and honesty. Um, and what we found is that when we had that, it really reduced the need to posture to um, instead allow us to hold each other accountable to commitments and deliverables and agreements. Um, the infrastructure also uh, supported, you know, corresponding relationships between us and our partners in creating this ecosystem. And we had relationships from senior leadership all the way to the front line that interact that interacts directly with our students. So as a result of those sort of, you know, that that connective tissue, as you've been referencing, um, we were able to and still are able to address uh, barriers really quickly. Um, communication is direct. Um, our change management is more agile and the learning environment that is created um, between us is supported um, and it results in us being sort of we call sort of a stance of inquiry versus certainty. Um, and it really inspires innovation and supports innovation over stagnation. Yeah, you really have learned a lot. Um, I think there's a lot of important lessons there to, to be shared. Um, you know, what I really, really strikes at me is really the intentionality, right, with which you put the partnership together, right? And some beginning agreements, then leading to interdependence, which then leads to trust, right? Which then leads to the ability to sort of move quickly, right? Because you're, you're connected, right? You don't have to worry about stepping on toes or, um, you know, who's, who's getting credit for what. And, and obviously that takes a lot of work to get there, but it really creates a much firmer foundation on which to build. And it strikes me sometimes in education, it's interesting you said you took, you came from a consulting background that it sometimes seems like in education, it's more like people assume since we all have the same goal, we should naturally work together. And not a lot of effort is put into how we work together, right? And then it quickly falls apart. Um, so I just think that that's a really important learning of it. There's a lot of work to create that partnership um, in, in a thoughtful way, right? That gets the, the, the right environment shape for the partnership to flourish. And, and you say something that's really important um, because there's a lot of excitement around finding new and innovative ways to support students, to retain them, to get them to persist and, and to graduate. Um, there's, there's a um, sort of a rush to let's do the partnership, let's get this done, yeah. you know, sort of yeah. let's get this going. Um, and 
you know, um, I'm trying to think of his name from um, the 10 Minute Salesman. No, that's not the name of the of the yeah. book, but he um, it's a it's a I'm, my background is organizational psychology. I'm an organizational psychologist by training. Right. And one of the things that we talk about is to go slow, to go fast. And so if you build the, the foundation, if you can make sure that we trust one another and there's there's a book called The Speed of Trust. Um, it's really important to have that so that we can go fast. But if we try to go fast before going slow, as you said, it falls apart because there's some critical things that we don't understand about one another. We may not agree on. Um, and you don't want to find that out when you're in the middle of trying to do the work. Yeah. And, and you know, the prime example that just drove that home to me was right at the, you know, right at the heart of the pandemic, right? We had this, this sort of dual reality where it seemed like you, you know, guys, if you just work together, you solve each other's problem. But there was there wasn't the connective tissue, which was we know there was many high school students that were that they couldn't get the normal guidance they got to go to post-secondary because that is delivered in person. Right. And it's sort of a constant nagging and nurturing and systems weren't really set up to be virtual yet. And so because they were uncertain, they didn't even know what was going to be on campus. They sort of naturally held back. And so campuses, college campuses were really worried, like, oh, we have fewer people enroll, fewer people are enrolling. What are we going to do? And, you know, some started, you know, cutting budgets and like freezing retirement benefits. And I just felt like saying like, you know, if you guys would just talk to each other and you could use some of your resources to reach out to those high school kids to tell them how to get to your college, like, you know, it would really be a win-win, but there was no connective tissue, right? So each side just sort of pulled back, right? And then kids got lost in that shuffle. Right. Right. Absolutely. And it's sort of related to that. Um, it takes me to my next question, which is, you know, one of the things I've always thought was powerful also about Chief Atlanta's work um, is that you really you know, use you work with it in this ecosystem. You use data and tools to interpret the data are really a key part of the work. Um, so can you give us an example of how you've done this and the impact it's had, how you've sort of used data and tools to interpret it as, as a way to sort of build this ecosystem once you have the trust of the partners? Sure. Um, our data team is um, sort of integrated throughout all of our programmatic work. Um, and that I think that's really important. They're not um, sort of consulting to us. They do consult to us, but they are they are also part of our team um, and they understand the work in a way that that helps us to make the best decisions we can. One of our informal mantras is data driven programming based on evidence based pr uh, practices. And so our focus is on really understanding the factors that influence the desire to not only attend and persist, but to complete college or any post-secondary credential for that matter. Um, and, and we really have to understand those factors to build the partnerships we just talked about to appropriately, appropriately support the students um, all throughout this, this journey um, from high school through, through completion of a post-secondary credential. So, for example, um, some examples of some of the ways that we use data um, with our partnership with Atlanta Public Schools, we have a data sharing agreement. And based on, on the information we can get from uh, uh, Atlanta Public Schools, at the time the student graduates from high school and is getting ready to enter into college, Achieve Atlanta is in a unique position where we have the most data on that student. We have information from their high school, um, but we also collect data during every renewal period um, for our scholarship. And so um, our data team has actually created a regression model that predicts the likelihood that an incoming college student will persist in college. 
It's called our persistence likelihood <laughs> model. Uh, and our students, you know, that are considered high priority um, based on this model, receive more frequent academic and social emotional outreach before the midterm of their first term to reduce the likelihood of them stopping out. So early data patterns show a decrease in the number of students considered high priority by the second term. Um, and so we think that by pre providing those high touches when they first get there um, really makes a difference in terms of starting them out on the right foot um, and being able to correct certain behaviors before the midterm. Yeah. Um, that's, Another example. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say that's so powerful because like that, that that first early experience with failure can really right. set you back and really start you. You know, is this for me? Do I belong? Um, right. Particularly when you're the first in your family to be there. And maybe there was, you know, some obstacles or maybe it wasn't 100 percent, you know, opinion backing you going to college from your 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 family or friends. Right. And then so that it's really important to use that data to to prevent that first taste of failure. Sorry. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that recursive graph, right? Yeah. I mean, some of the information that we collect from our students every time they renew their scholarship, which is every term, um, both fall and spring, we collect data on social supports and resilience and growth mindset, their study and work habits, um, food and housing insecurity, for example. Um, and we use that to actually create another tool that we love um, again, I, I said my background was organizational psychology, coaching, leadership development. Um, we provide a one page coaching summary for all of our partners. And so on this one pager, there is a summary of all of this information for um, our partners to prepare when they're coaching and advising uh, our students. And they can intervene and broker resources um, for the student, you know, on issues that they had in high school and didn't just go away because the setting has changed. And, you know, you talked about the impact of COVID-19. That really has exacerbated a lot of those needs. Um, one of the things we, we found by using some of this data and uh, both quantitative and qualitative um, is we implemented a student assistance program, which is like EAP, but for our, our students. Um, and it provides short-term acute mental health services for our students and their families. And so our the most recent data that we collected is of those utilizing the service, 86% actually reported res resolution to their presenting problem. And so that really makes us excited to, to continue using these data-driven interventions um, to impact these student outcomes. Yeah, I mean, that really shows you just that sort of you know, for lack of a better term, that close progress monitoring, but also knowing the circumstances, putting right. those two together lets you be much more proactive as opposed to reactive, right? Right. So absolutely. So that, that's that's wonderful. All right. Now I'm going to go a little wider in a way um, and talk a little bit of the context in which all this work, great work is happening. Um, so, you know, we know that across the U.S., higher education has long been the province of the advantaged. Um, and in many ways, you know, explicit and implicit, they've worked to maintain those advantages. Um, you know, and there's a long history of, you know, higher education through various means, limiting access to women, to minorities, to lower income families. And progress has been made uh, through hard efforts and fits and starts. And, you know, we've removed some barriers to access and success. But even as that's happened, others have materialized, Right. So just talk to us a little bit about, you know, turning the mirror on ourselves and asking if we, you know, if we, if we spout rhetoric about equal opportunity, what do we have to do to make real on that rhetoric that we really are supporting equal opportunity? And in this modern era, we're saying that has to be including 
access to college and success in college? Yeah, um, you know, as you mentioned, our institutions were built to cater to um, the delight, the culture, the expectations of very targeted groups. Uh, and it's important, I think, for institutions to acknowledge that the work of constructing equitable processes and norms has to acknowledge that business as usual does not take into account the way that other groups are experiencing the world, the way in which the world interacts with them, and what it feels like really to commit to a space that hasn't made significant changes to signify understanding. And so, although we're not a direct service organization, when there's a need, we actually do reach out and, and you know, keep in touch or, or talk to our students. When COVID-19 first hit, um, we really got a lot of detailed information. We worked with our partners to contact every scholar personally. Um, and then those who went to school out of state who were not assigned a coach, um, we divided that list among our team and we called them. And so in helping them to navigate, like getting back home and getting their their you know, apartments or dorms locked up and their, their, you know, stuff stored. We were struck by how institution centric um, the processes were. Um, it, it seemed to us and to our students that many of the schools we talked to and trying to help students navigate were really about the machine, you know, keeping the machine running. Um, and there's a lot of similarities between education and healthcare. My back, I was in healthcare for, for 20 years before coming into the sector. And one of the things it reminded me of is around the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a lot of research around um, women and maternal infant care and what was happening um, with the high number of sort of adverse effects that that um, mothers were experiencing. And at the same time, there was a drop off with OBGYNs who were going into that area of specialty. And over time, what the industry saw was that babies were starting to be born more between sort of normal hours, right? You know, not that whole waking up in the middle of the night and delivering a baby. No, not so much. And so what we saw some of these trends and it was very disturbing because you know, were we were things being done to make sure that, you know, as safely as possible, babies were born during these convenient hours to give OBGYNs a sense of work life balance. Right. Like everyone else. Um, and so what that led to in, in the system that I was a part of, the, the healthcare system I worked for, um, what that led to was a realization that we had become much more physician centric than patient centric. And I think that same kind of awakening has happened with COVID-19 and there are our you know, institutions of higher education is to sort of peel back the layers and said, you know, we've been, yes, we care about students. Yes, we want them, you know, to come to our institutions, but we, we really weren't, we've made things easy for us, but not necessarily for our students to navigate. And we're not nimble and agile enough to be able, when something unprecedented like COVID hits, um, even if it had been something that wasn't as catastrophic, the ability to change on a dime to make sure the students felt, you know, included and cared for um, really wasn't at the center. It was about, well, can we keep our doors open? Can we keep, um, you know, financial aid? And this process is not going to change just because we're not in person. You still have to do these things. Um, and so that was pretty um 
<laughs> disturbing, uh, to say the least. And so I think, you know, inclusion means that, you know, there's a space for you and the way you experience the world. Um, belonging says we don't control the space and no one has the right to negotiate your place here. Um, belonging says that the institution is nimble, meets your needs, um, and that it naturally happens in this community as a goal. That's where we want to get. And I think institutions are slowly waking up to that idea. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really profound point about just like this, you know, institutional culture of universities where like, you know, change is measured in like a decade. It takes <laughs> us a decade to get to a change, you know, and like, well, the world's moving a little faster than a decade right. at a time now, um, you know, and so I think that's, uh, you know, really, really deep. And, and it's really, I think, you know, again, this ecosystem role where you see across these these institutions is a really unique vantage point, right? And it really, I think, helps helps both, right, to 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 Put to put that mirror to themselves, right, and say, "Hmm, maybe there's some things we can change that you know are doing more more negative than we thought." Right? We just we just thought, yeah, yeah. All right, I'm going to shift gears here a little bit for our our final two big questions. Um, so, you know, if you look at the recent media about college, you know, it's this, it's almost this different story that there's this reporting that you know students and parents are beginning to question the value of college education. Um, that it's not doing enough to prepare them to get good jobs, and so it's not worth the cost. And, you know, on one hand, it's sort of easy to make the case that this is overstated. Um, you know, if you clearly look at the data, you can clearly see that you're much better, better off getting a college degree than not. Um, it's not even close. You know, there might be, you know, one or two specific certain circumstances where it's different, but as a general rule. Um But on the other hand, you know, the world of work is and has changed very rapidly. And as we just talked about, like, Universities and colleges are pretty slow to, to adapt to changing worlds. And so it may be that colleges do need to engage in some redesign to sort of attune the, the value of what they're giving to kids and how it's, it's useful to sort of prepare them for adult success. So sort of where do you fall on that debate in your experience working with the various institutions in Atlanta? And have you seen examples of some being more nimble than others and sort of adjusting themselves to sort of shifts in the world of work and preparing kids for it? Yeah, we have. Um, there's a couple of things that, that are happening. Um, we received a grant to explore that very question um, and have involved a couple of our partner institutions that are um, really see this as, as an issue um, and are working diligently to rectify it, that, that nimble, you know, that agile um, you know, agility to be able to approach the issue um, is endemic in, in the way that they work. So, um, and we also entered into a partnership with a, a third organization, which is sort of cuts through this. So I'll, I'll share a little bit about each. Um, one of the programs that we have partnered with um, is Braven. Um, it's B-R-A-V-E-N, because um, some people, when I say that, say, what, what did you say? Um, but Braven is a, is an amazing program. Um, it offers, um, for the students that we have engaged in this process, a, an intensive 15 week college level fellowship course. Um, it meets weekly for two hours and students receive job coaching and mentoring. Um, they do learn master interviewing techniques. They are able to create their LinkedIn profile. Um, so the, it's a really deep dive into understanding a little bit more about what they want to do and connecting their current 
um, major and work in high school to um, that career. So it provides a, a pathway. It happens their sophomore year. So they're able to get at least two summer experiences um, between soph- uh, sophomore and junior uh, year, sophomore, the summer after their sophomore year and the summer after their junior year, whether that's a research experience, an internship, um, volunteer work, whatever, they're able, they're better prepared to have that early enough to make those connections to the outside world. So Braven is one of those um, organizations that um, sees that as, an, you know, making sure the students have, um, you know, that social um, the, the understanding to be able to be able to navigate um, in the professional world. Um, so that leads me into um, another partnership. So Spelman College, my alma mater, um, is in a partnership with Braven to provide all of their sophomores with this Braven X experience. Um, and that has been sort of groundbreaking, I think, in terms of um, the type of work that um, is directly, you can directly see the link. It's part of Spelman's quality enhancement plan. Um, they provide, you know, not only the Braven experience for all of the students, the sophomore students, but they're also providing a skill survey, which is a talent intelligence platform um, for assessing student skills through the National Association of Colleges and Employees, Employers. Um, but they're also holding um, these NACE, which is, you know, that National Association of Colleges and Employers. Um, they are holding these um, career competency workshops. And these are designed to help students improve their skills and their behaviors that are associated with um, any organization, sort of eight career competencies. So they've embarked on on this ex- um, sort of experiment um, to draw a tighter connection to um, from from the college experience to the work world. And, and those are you know two of the partners we're working with to make that happen. The third is Georgia State. And. As you know, Georgia State is at the forefront of a lot of amazing work. Um, and as a partner, again, our students are, are exp- getting a chance to experience this, um, you know, right at the beginning. Um, they have done some research to show that, um, you know, students listen to faculty as their primary source of career guidance, um, as their primary source of information. Um, but, you know, traditionally, and we talked a little bit about this in terms of uh, the culture of education, um, faculty has been hesitant to embrace and sort of embrace this concept of teaching um, specific career competencies in a class. And so what Georgia State has done as um, sort of worked with faculty um, as collaborators to prepare students for for their careers and create um, this link to certain career competencies uh, sort of reflected in the syllabus um, to help students start to get used to that idea. Um, and so what they've come up with is, you know, this model that when faculty are ready, you know, sort of transferring that knowledge, transferring some of that experiential learning um, and translating that into the curriculum. Um, and so that's a, a big, big piece of the work that they're doing across the university. Um, and their objectives are that, you know, not only will students become aware of their career options and the actions they need to pursue them, which is huge, um, but that they will make the connection between what they're learning in the classroom and how that makes them career ready. So drawing that straight line from one to the other and connecting those, again, the connective tissue, um, and then that they'll be able to demonstrate that career readiness to potential employers um, based on these experiences. Wow. Those are marvelous. I mean, it's really like the next right. frontier, right? We 
first you work at getting kids to college and then through college and then from college to yeah. work. And, uh, and you know, one thing I, I, I often say is my sort of thought experiment to say, like, this is where we need to be. And are we there yet? Is that, you know, can we imagine the day when, you know, the principal of the largest, you know, high school in a town and the undergraduate dean from the university that takes most enrolls most kids in, in that town from the, you know, from the school system and the the uh, hiring, you know, manager of the biggest employer, you know, all find themselves next to each other in the grocery store <laughs> checkout line and greet each other as old friends. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Um, yeah, we're all in it together. Yeah. And, and we know, and we, yeah. And we know right now that in most places, like they wouldn't, they wouldn't know each other. Right. And that's, that's part of the problem. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and part of the experiment we're, that we have grant funding for has brought together not just um, a couple of our, you know, Braven's a part of it, Spelman is a part of it, Georgia State is a part of it, but also the Metro Atlanta Chamber of Commerce um, and the Georgia Chamber of Commerce. So, you know, there's this beginning to get us all at the checkout line at the same time um, and talking about the same issues and and how, you know, we're, we're connected. Um, and the success of one is really interdependent with the success of the other. Yeah. Another one of those things like it should be common sense, but you got to work to make the connection. Yeah. Um, so we're going to conclude by going big. What will it take for the work of Chief Atlanta has pioneered to create an ecosystem of institutions working to provide all students with a much more, much more supported pathways from high school to and through college and now on to work? The norm across the nation. So, as I said, that those those folks agree each other as old friends because they're, you know, in a way that. They control the future of the of the kids of that community, right? Right. Um, what, what is it going to take for that to be the norm? You know, one of the things I've discovered, you know, we, Achieve Atlanta was founded in 2015. And in the, in the last seven years, um, one of the things we've learned from our partners and just learned from being in this world is that the everybody pretty much knows the solution. Um, but we tend to make it more complicated than it actually is or it needs to be to make connections, to create ecosystems, to work together toward a common goal. Um, and one of the things that gets in the way is humility or the lack of. Um, and so I think one of the, the you know, basic tenets has to be um, admitting that you don't know what you don't know, that not everyone, especially in this, as we sort of come out of this pandemic era, we really don't know what we don't know. And so, you know, being able to fail fast, being able to experiment, um, being curious um, and honest about what we're discovering um, and being willing, even if it's not going to be fast, being willing to change. Um, there's a big piece of this is courage. It doesn't mean that we're not afraid, but, you know, it's feel the fear and do it anyway. Um, having that type of orientation, I think, is critical to creating sustainable change um, across, you know, this ecosystem. Um, the trust, I think, is born out of psychological safety. Um, and, you know, that links back to the humility, the honesty, the curiosity, the courage. Um, and I think we all have to share the same worldview of what we would like post-secondary education to look like um, and then commit those resources. And not just, you know, human and technological uh, financial resources, but I think even more important, probably the most important, is that the psychological resources, you know, sort of harvesting um, so much of the knowledge that's already out there in a usable way, in a, in a very concrete and 
concise way um, and taking, you know, sort of breaking that apart and saying, what do we need to do first, second, third and fourth? And understanding that it's not going to it's going to take time. It will take time. But that if we're in this together and we stick with it and we're honest and all the things we just talked about, we can make a difference over time. My mom is always you know, fond of saying time is going to pass anyway. So in five years, you know, do you want to look up and say, well, we were still thinking about, no, you know, you could have been doing something during that five years and trying things out. That's great. That's great. Uh, Thank you, Suzanne. Um, As we close out, are there any last words you'd like to share with the audience or let them know where they can learn more about what we discussed today? Absolutely. Thank you for um, asking that. Uh, Our website is AchieveAtlanta.org. We have a wealth of resources. Our marketing and communication team has done a great job of uh, continuing to evolve our website so that it's user-friendly, that it provides a lot of the information that um, I'm talking about here. Um, We have a couple of uh, publications in terms of uh, the finances of our students during COVID, Um, just our impact report, lots of things that we're learning. We have several uh, blog posts, but also we have a lot of information about our scholarship. And there is a a page that we have that's um, called Pathways to Persistence that is just chock full of lots of resources uh, that is open to the public to peruse for any student to take advantage of. Um, You can find us on that website. Um, You can find us on LinkedIn and uh, Instagram, as well as Twitter at Achieve Atlanta. So would love to hear from you. Absolutely. You have so much to share and so much uh, hard, hard learned wisdom and uh, success. So I really want to thank you today. It was a wonderful and very informative discussion and a very hopeful one, too. So thanks. Thank you for having me. To bring our discussion to a close, I would like to thank Suzanne again for sharing what Achieve Atlanta is learning about what it will take to provide all our students with a pathway to adult success. One of the organizing myths of the U.S. education system is the notion of self-reliance. It's on you if you succeed or not. In many ways, this is how we continue to treat the transition from high school to college. What this ignores is the existing inequities and who is and is not provided the information, supports, experiences, and relationships upon which self-reliance rests. So let's just take one more example. On a positive note, an increasing number of selective colleges have taken steps to lower the cost of a four-year degree for low-income students. But yet, they have few mechanisms to spread this word so it's widely understood by families. So what sometimes happens is a first-generation college student might express interest in going to a more selective college, um, and then someone in their family inevitably will search that college on their phone. And if you do this, you can see almost inevitably the first thing that will pop up if you put any college's name into your phone is what its annual tuition is, um, just sort of its, its list price. And we know those annual tuitions can easily be twice or more than a family's income. And this can easily just shut down the possibility of attending that college as no one knows there's actually a means to get a full scholarship available, right? So we've talked, you know, universities make, do something good, but the connective tissue is not there to get that knowledge into the ecosystem so it's widely known. So to provide all our students with a pathway to adult success, we need to move beyond this myth of self-reliance and recognize that in the 21st century, public education needs to provide all students with the supports and experiences which enable a successful transition from K-12 to higher education and success in college. And Achieve Atlanta is showing this how it can be done. Before we go, we want to ask you to please subscribe to Designing Education, 
to stay up to date on all the revolutionary work happening in education. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a five-star review. And please share the show with a friend or colleague or on social media. This has been Robert Balfance from the Everyone Graduate Center and the Pathway to Adult Success Project, thanking everyone for listening and inviting you to listen to the other episodes in our Designing Education series, wherever you listen to podcasts. Onward and be well.